This episode contains content that may be difficult to hear. Please check the show notes for more information. Listener discretion is advised. After my family and friends had accepted me, I started thinking about hockey and if I would be judged, if it would affect my career in a certain way, if, you know, I wouldn't get picked for certain teams. Things like that, you know, ran through my head basically a whole year. I was perfectly fine with walking away from the game of hockey if I wasn't accepted. Kind of find a new career path and be who I wanted to be. And it's sad to think about because hockey had been my whole life for so long. And so that was kind of the whole reason, I think, and that lesson that I had to learn of not caring what people thought is one of the major reasons why, you know, I felt comfortable coming out. I wanted to do this for me and be able to, you know, live my truth and live the way I want to. In 2021... Nashville Predators prospect Luke Prokop came out as gay in a social media post, making him the first player under contract with an NHL team to do so. His announcement was received positively by family, friends, and teammates in the Western Hockey League. And in the years since, he's won a junior hockey championship, played in big tournaments, and received humanitarian awards. It's the best response he could have hoped for. But acceptance wasn't a given. The year leading up to his announcement... Luke struggled under the immense pressure of his secret. His place suffered as he weighed what it would mean to come out and whether an openly gay man could have a future in such a hyper-masculine sport. Playing professional hockey was all he had ever dreamed of, and for the first time in his life, he considered leaving the game for good. In the end, he had to make a choice about his mental health, and he decided he had to be his true self, no matter the costs. Now he plays with a new freedom, knowing that he can be who he is on and off the ice. From the Players' Tribune, I'm former National Hockey League goaltender Corey Hirsch. And I'm psychiatrist Dr. Diane McIntosh. Welcome to Blindside. Mental health, sports, and life. Tell me a little bit about how you got started in hockey, who was your influences, you know, how old you were, and how you got involved in sports. Well, my dad kind of introduced me to the game. He played when he was growing up. My grandpa played, and my older brother, Josh, he played as well. So it was kind of just natural for me to get into the game of hockey. You know, my dad was the one who introduced the game to me. He would make the outdoor rink in the backyard and get me and my brother on the ice battling against each other. So he's been one of my biggest supporters ever since. When did you realize that you were you were good? Like you were had the ability to, to play? Well, I think there's the brick tournament in, in Edmonton here. I made that team when I was 10 years old. So I knew kind of then I was one of the top players in Alberta. Um, for my age group, and then just continuing to get better with each off season, and and you know refining my skills. And we played in this big league in Pee Wee that was kind of all across northern Alberta with uh, you know a bunch of good players. And you know my team did really well. I had a really good season playing with some great players. So it was kind of around then. I think I was probably 13, uh, 12, 13 years old when I when I knew that I was pretty good at hockey, and you know I could uh, do something with it. You did go to a training camp, right? Last year, did you go to camp? Did they have one? Yeah. Yeah, I went to, yeah. yeah, I've been to Nashville now three times. What was that like for you, just to step into a locker room and just to, like, be at an NHL training camp? It was a really cool experience. Um, just being, I mean, in Nashville, never been to the city. 
seeing the arena, seeing all the players that are playing there, played previous. I mean, they were they were my favorite team growing up, them and the Oilers. Uh, Shea Weber was my favorite player. Looked up to him a lot, so I watched a lot of their games, and that's how I became a fan of them. So just being kind of in that environment and, and also knowing the way that they have shaped, you know, defensemen in the league. They've shaped so many great players that have had long careers. Shea Weber, Seth Jones, Ryan Suter, uh, Subban's been there, Ellis, Ekholm. I mean, the list goes on and on. Yossi, just being uh, able to be on the ice with those guys and compete against them in camp um, and just kind of be able to talk to them and pick their brains off the ice is something really special that, you know, I, I plan on doing for for the rest of my career. So, Luke, you have had an extraordinary journey over the last few years, and I wonder if you could talk about when you first had that thought of, hmm, I wonder, am I having these feelings? Are they normal for me? What's going on? Do you remember that? I had just moved, actually, to Kelowna to attend academy, a hockey academy there called Pursuit of Excellence. It was for a hockey reason. I wanted to improve my draft stock and play with a really good team in a league that, you know, all the best players in Western Canada were playing in. At that age, you know, guys are going through puberty and, you know, they're more vocal about liking girls and girls' bodies and stuff like that. And I never really participated in those conversations. I felt kind of awkward when they were had, and I never really felt the same way that they did. So that's kind of when I started questioning things and digging a little bit deeper into, you know, what my sexuality might be. But yeah, that was, it was around at the age of 14 when I knew I was different. I felt like I was in, you know, a box and everyone else was kind of around me. Like I was just kind of in my own little world, I would say, per se. And everyone else was, you know, living the way that I was supposed to be. Like I wasn't living the way I should be. You know, guys had girlfriends, single guys on the team were, you know, hooking up with girls, you know, all the time. And that just, that wasn't me. You know, they would joke about it and um, they would kind of, you know, make fun of you if you weren't doing those things. So that's the only experiences I've ever had with, you know, kind of older guys and, you know, being in a locker room with them. And I guess like being a man, like that's how, you know, they were acting. And, um, you know, if I wasn't doing that, I didn't feel, you know, like a man as well either, especially when I was first, you know, starting to recognize, you know, that I was different, that I was gay. I was angry that i didn't want to be different. I didn't really know how to handle it, I guess. When you started having that questioning, what was that like for you? Was it scary? Did it feel like as long as I keep my mouth shut, everything's fine? Or how did you go through that in your head? Yeah, it was scary, but I think I kind of used hockey as an escape for a long time with it. Um, you know, I could just go to the rink and, you know, not have to think about it as much after the rink. You know, after one of our, our, our days at POE were probably, you know, eight eight to ten hours long. So after the days, just decompressing and then those thoughts kind of go through my mind. You know, instead of doing homework or watching video over my games, that's kind of the stuff that I was thinking about. So it, it affected me in a way at a young age, but I don't think it, it really hurt me. And especially in my hockey career, you know, I kind of was able to maintain the two kind of up until, you know, the year before. The season before I came out was kind of when I really noticed it starting to affect uh, my on-ice performance. Were you scared, Luke, or confused? Or like, what were your feelings at that point when you started kind of thinking? Confused. I had nobody in my life that had, you know, come out. I hadn't known really anybody personally, whether that be a friend or, you know, a friend's family member that had come out. So I really didn't understand what it meant. 
And so I didn't feel like I could go to anyone about it. I mean, especially at that kind of young of an age, I really didn't know what my sexuality was. So I wasn't comfortable talking about it with with anybody. Um, and I mean, I wasn't even thinking about the effect it would have on my hockey career at that point in time because um, I really hadn't done anything. So I couldn't talk about it with anyone. So that was really hard for me during the season and kind of those few years before, uh, you know, I did come out. What was happening that led to you finally deciding, okay, that's it. I'm going to come out. I'm going to be me. I don't think there was, you know, a singular, you know, moment in time where, or a reaction to something that I felt like, okay, I needed to do this now. But it was, it was after my season got canceled from COVID. I mean, me and my sister hung out every day. We were never close growing up. She was doing kind of her own thing. I was busy with hockey. We never really had the chance to hang out or talk or argue about what brother and sister do. But we got really close over COVID. Um, we did everything together. We hung out all the time. I don't know. The way I can describe it is just like there's this feeling in the pit of your stomach that makes you feel comfortable in that moment. And you don't know when you're going to get that moment ever again. So then that's when I knew that I had the chance and the courage in that moment to go up and, you know, and talk to her and open up to her. I can still remember the conversation I had with my sister just sitting on her bed talking about it. We were both crying. I mean, I was crying even before I started talking to her. I think it was just built up emotion over the four or five years that I had been kind of going through that process, not being able to talk to anyone. I mean, I'm also a softie. I cry a lot, but I knew it was going to be a good reaction. But I mean, you honestly really never know. Could have gone either way. So I was just kind of hoping for the best. And and then, you know, just hearing her talk about, you know, how much she loves me, how much she cares for me, and how she's going to, you know, be there for me a thousand percent. Like those, that's kind of, it was what I needed to hear in that moment. And it was just so beautiful. And um, she gave me a huge hug. As a gay man, the first person you tell when you come out, you want it to be a positive reaction. She just hugged me and told me she's going to, you know, she doesn't care. She's going to love me the same no matter what. She was happy and, you know, that I was able to, you know, feel comfortable enough to talk to her about it. And I remember just sitting in my bed like later that night thinking, you know, this might be the way it feels, you know, every single time I come out to someone. I think for me, having children who are around your age, to be honest, that I think my heart would be a little broken that you struggled with this alone and that you didn't say anything about it. But you had to do it on your own time. How has your family reacted to that? And have they reflected that way at all? Yeah, well, it's funny. That was, I mean, that was the kind of exact response I got from my mom. When I told her, she was she was very emotional, obviously, but not for for it being a bad thing or wanting to change me. She she was upset that I had to help, had to hold that in for so long. And, you know, I couldn't talk to her about it. I couldn't be open about it. That's why she felt bad. And my dad did as well. You know, there was a, a struggle with my dad. You know, I, I didn't really ever have the, the guts to tell him. I'd have been terrified to come out to my dad if I was in your shoes, just because it's your dad, right? And what was that like, the thoughts leading up to it, the plan of telling your parents and then the actual of telling your parents? What was that story and what was that like for you? Yeah, my dad was definitely the hardest person that I was going to have to tell. You know, he was the male role model that I grew up, look, you know, looking up to. I didn't want to disappoint him in any way. You know, I didn't want him to think that I was a, that he failed as a parent, you know, with, with me being gay. And those were thoughts that, you know, went through my, med, 
my mind constantly after I'd come out to my, you know, my sister and my mom. And so I struggled with it for a long time. And so did my mom and my sister. You know, they, it was so hard for them to keep a secret, especially my mom from my father. You know, they tell each other everything and I could really see it. It was, it was really hard for them, you know, that there was something that my mom knew that my dad didn't. And, you know, my mom felt like she had to keep it away from him. Um, how long, how long did you wait between? Well, my sister was in April of 2020. My mom was in May of 2020. The whole thing with my dad kind of went down um, in early September. And, you know, a lot of people don't know the whole story about my, me, you know, me coming out to my dad. I've, I've kind of just told it, you know, um, as, you know, I told my dad and everything went perfectly fine. But um, what actually happened was my sister was just, she was always constantly asking me, you know, when I was going to tell my dad he would be so supportive. And, you know, I would just always tell her, like, I'm not ready. I need to do it on my own time. And, you know, then we, you know, she came up with some ideas that maybe might help me. I never really agreed to them. Maybe she thought I did. So what happened was she decided to kind of, in her words, uh, plant a seed in my dad's head. You know, that, you know, guys my age were, you know, going through stuff, whether that be mental health or, you know, relationships or questioning their sexuality. And so my sister went up to my dad one day and, you know, just kind of had that talk because my dad knew I was going through something like he knows me better than anyone. He, he knows when I'm struggling. He knows when I'm happy. He knows when something's off with me. And he could really see me struggling for a long time. And, you know, he he tried to talk to me and I wouldn't I wouldn't open up to him. And, you know, he he really felt kind of in the dark, out of the loop. And I could see it weighing on him, too. So my sister went to my dad and, you know, explained that to him. And the first thing that he clicked into was, you know, is is the sexuality part. So he straight up asked my sister, is Luke gay? And she just didn't say anything. She walked out of the room. And then the next morning, my mom was sitting on the kitchen table eating breakfast or whatever. And um, my dad came down the stairs and said the exact same thing to her. So then, and then she, she just kind of let all the emotion that she was feeling out. She, she had kept that secret in for so long. And I kind of feel bad now that... I let her do that. Um, you know, maybe I should have told them together or something like that. But um, she was emotional, and my dad knew right away that that was it. But I never knew that he found out. So about, I want to say, two weeks later, there was a conversation I had with my sister. I had gotten back from work, and they were all kind of sitting on the uh, in the living room, They've all kind of had a little bit too much to drink. My sister was, again, talking about, you know, what I'm going to tell dad and, you know, why I haven't yet. And all of a sudden she goes, she, he knows. I was like, what? He was like, yeah, he knows. And I was like, well, like, what do you mean? And I was getting angry at this point. And so then she explained, you know, that kind of situation to me. And I freaked out. I packed a bag I left home for a week um, or maybe even longer. I lived with one of my friends for, I want to say, six or seven days and then another four or five with another friend, just kind of avoiding the whole situation because 
I was, one, I was pissed at my sister for what she did. And secondly, like, I was terrified to, you know, have a conversation with my dad now about it. I wanted to do it on my own terms, and I, and I wasn't able to do that. And, I mean, he didn't act any differently in those two weeks, but it was just something that, you know, it's, it was my story to tell, and I was, I was just very angry about that. And I just realized that, I mean, I can't run away from the situation anymore. You know, they're my family. You know, I love them no matter what. I know, you know, that they do as well. Uh, so after the two weeks, I had a lunch with my dad. Um, we just kind of talked about everything. And, you know, he was amazing. We both broke down crying once again, telling me that how much he supports me and stuff. And then I kind of moved back in at home. And things were great ever since then. And But that was that was one story that I don't think a lot of people know that I haven't really told before just because I wanted everyone to, I guess, think it was all, you know, sunshine and rainbows when I told, you know, everyone in my family when really there were some struggles, not great struggles, but they were hard for me to go through. Luke, why were you so worried about your dad, do you think? I just didn't want to make him feel like I disappointed him, I guess. I didn't want to. I, it had gone with hockey for so long, like, I wanted to play, you know, there were times where I felt like I was playing for him. I didn't want to disappoint him. And I think that was kind of what it went through when, you know, in terms of me coming out to him. Like, I don't want to disappoint him. I don't want to see him to see me as a failure. I didn't want to think that maybe he did something wrong, you know, in my childhood. Because, I mean, it was, it wasn't a great situation in my house, I want to say, for the language being used. Um, you know, you know, gay and, you know, fag were used quite often. That was just kind of my, it was just kind of my situation with, with my family and friends and stuff like that. So, I mean, I didn't know how he was going to react. Looking back on it now, I kind of feel stupid about it because my dad would have been there for me no matter what. But, you know, in that moment, you don't, you never really know how someone is going to react. You want it to be positive, but you just never know. So I think that's kind of why I held off telling my dad for so long and why I was so upset with my sister for telling him because I wanted to do it on my own terms. This is why it's so important to have this conversation. He's a man of his, I'm, I'm guessing how old he is. He's somewhere in his, his mid-50s to his mid-60s. And he grew up at a time when people use those words. But when you're growing up and having these feelings inside your head and I, you're not sure what, how everyone's going to react, then those words sting. So that's why this is such a critical conversation to have and why you're so brave in having it, because you are so young. So many people can look up to you for that. I know you know that members of the LGBTQ community are are vulnerable to mental illness because of a lot of what you've just talked about and especially not having those strong social supports around them like you had. And you were carrying around a lot of conflict internally that no one else knew about. Was there a, a low point at that dark moment? Did you ever struggle with depression through this? I think there were times where I had thought about if, you know, if I wasn't on this earth anymore, you know, if if people would miss me, kind of that sort of thing was I what I went through kind of at a young age. And then, I mean, you know, continuing to learn about myself and learn at who I was as a person, if people were going to treat me differently, if my friends and family were going to treat me differently, just the anxiety of that, I think, was something that was huge for me. I kind of had this whole plan 
in my head of what I was going to do. You know, if my parents didn't accept me, if my friends and you know, if my friends didn't accept me, I had a you know, I had a plan of moving to the United States and you know, having a new job and having a partner and you know, having a dog and a house and just kind of making up this little fantasy world in my head. If things did go south, especially if I wasn't doing well in hockey, I'm very hard on myself when it comes to my play, and if I'm not exceeding my expectations or, you know, up to my standards of how I play. I, I get very down on myself. I get very hard on myself. And same, I mean, my my father will say the same thing. He he was very hard on me and my brother. Um, you know, if we didn't, you know, play to our standards and, you know, exceed his and our expectations. So, you know, there were some times where I didn't feel like I was Again, living my life, there were some games in hockey where I felt like I wasn't playing for myself. I was playing for my dad. I was playing to make sure he was happy. Those were the times when, you know, I wasn't, when I wasn't playing well and I was kind of in a, in a funk. Um, I mean, there was a point in time in my life, too, where I didn't want to play hockey. I wanted to quit. And, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that I didn't. But, um, yeah, there were there were a lot of dark moments kind of from, you know, ages 14 to 17, where I thought, you know, like, would people miss me if I wasn't here? One of the thoughts I always had, would anyone come to my funeral if I had one? Kind of things like that went through my mind at, at that age. It stuck with me for a long time throughout the process. And, you know, I was in a dark place for for a long time in a lot of those years. When you were having those thoughts, did you reach out to anyone or, or was the first time you talked about it with your sister? The first time I talked about it was with a therapist, I saw one before uh, after I came out to my sister. I never talked about those, you know, those dark moments with my sister. Um, I kind of just wanted to have go one thing at a time. I think you know, talk about my you know my sexuality with her, and, and you know, kind of leave it at that. Um, leave on a high note. I didn't want to you know talk about the the dark times. You know, when I was younger, but I, I did talk to a therapist for a little while here in Edmonton, which which helped a little bit gave me some tools, you know, and some tricks that I can use when, you know, I got those thoughts in my head ever again. And I think I stopped struggling kind of when, you know, I started to open up more. Once I started telling, you know, my family and friends about, you know, my sexuality, and then, you know, I started to feel comfortable telling them, you know, about when I was younger and, you know, my dark, my dark days. And, you know, we I, it brought me and my friends a lot closer together. We, you know, we shared experiences that, you know, I didn't know that they went through. Um, and not, you know, feeling that I wasn't there for them in that moment, you know, when I thought they were doing great and they weren't, you know, they were in a dark place themselves and, you know, not being able to see it. And now again, with my friends, we have a very open dialogue about how we're feeling. If we are feeling down, if we're feeling depressed, if we're feeling anxious, like we, we can talk about that with, with me and, you know, my family and my friends. Uh, and it's it's something that's beautiful to me because I hadn't had that in my life for so long. So it's really nice to, you know, be able to be open with all of my emotions, um, you know, and talk to talk to people about anything now. And what about from a professional perspective? You know, being drafted. What what was it like? Wondering how you would be accepted from that perspective once you moved out of out of the junior leagues. After my family and friends had accepted me. I was perfectly fine with walking away from the game of hockey if I wasn't accepted. I had come out to my family and friends. It was amazing. It was, you know, I felt on top of the world. But then 
I started thinking about hockey and if, if it would affect my career in a certain way, if I would be judged, if, you know, I wouldn't get picked for certain teams, if I wouldn't be given the same opportunities that, you know, straight players were given. Uh, things like that, you know, ran through my head a lot of the time, basically a whole year. Um, and that's what affected me so much in my season the year before I came out was, you know, all those thoughts were just going through my head, um, if it was going to affect my career or not. So, yeah, I was I was definitely willing away to step away from the game of hockey and um, kind of find a new career path and, you know, be be who I wanted to be. And it's sad to think about because hockey had been my whole life for so long. Like, I had been playing since I was four years old. Um, so I'd been playing for 14, 15 years at that point. Like, it's all I ever known. People ask me what I want to—if if I didn't play hockey, what would I do with my life? Like, what career would I go into? And I can't give them an answer because hockey's all I've ever known. It's all I've ever— Growing up, wanting to be, I never had the, you know, I guess struggles of, you know, thinking of a career choice for me. Like it was always hockey, hockey, hockey. And so being in a, in a place where, you know, I felt okay with leaving the game was was sad for me, but also beautiful in a way. Like I felt like I was doing it for me and not, I wanted to be happy myself. I wasn't, I wasn't going to play the game that I love with, you know, a bunch of people where I didn't feel comfortable. That was something for me that, you know, I wanted to, to be able to give to myself and give that opportunity to myself if if so if it so happens. Luke, I commend you for that and I I love hearing that because for even for me and a lot of guys thinking about walking away from the game when we feel like that's all we have and that's where we've built our self-esteem from and everything. I wish more guys would look at it that way, but we always put so much into the game like it's the end all be all like what would people think of me if I walked away from junior hockey or and I just find that that's, it's just when I look back, I wish I had that strength that you had because maybe I wouldn't have gone into the rabbit hole I did for as long as I did. So thank you for saying that. And, and I commend you for that because I, I think it's so important to realize that hockey's not the end all be all. Life is, there is life and life is more important. When you talked about that refuge that I've called it an island where you could imagine you going and just living your life as a as a happy, peaceful gay man, that was a sort of a safe place there. Did you ever think, I have to just keep this a secret forever and I have to keep this, I, I'm just going to continue with hockey, keeping it a secret? Or when did you get to a point of saying, you know, I can't, I can't keep this a secret anymore. I have got to get this out. It was when... I mean, I had, when I told my agents, it was it was in June of 2020. I sat down with them. I had lunch. They thought I was going to quit hockey. Uh, they kind of knew something was up. They thought that's what I was going to tell them. But, uh, you know, I, I, I told them I was gay. And that was kind of a big moment for me. Like, these are all guys who grew up playing in hockey, and they've worked in hockey for 40, 30, some of them 30 years. You know, they, that's that's all they've really known. So it was it was it took a lot for me to kind of come up to them and see their reactions. You know, my my head agent, Jerry, was he was loving it. He was all smiles and stuff. And then kind of the guy I I work with more, Scott, he he was pretty like straight faced and but that's how he always is. Like that's that's just who he is as a guy. But they we kind of went over it and you know, they said that you sort of have two options here. Like you can they said that I can either, you know, keep it private, you know, just tell the people that are you know, close to me, uh, I can tell I can tell my teammates and stuff, but not have it like go public, or I can go public with it. And so I thought about that for a while, and that's what I really wanted. I mean, I always kind of wanted to come out public. Um, I've said this in other interviews and stuff before, but I've always wanted to be known 
for something outside of the rink that changes hockey in some way, shape, or form. The closer I got to the date I came out, there were some days where I was 95% sure that I wasn't going to play hockey ever again. Sometimes a part of me wanted, you know, hockey to not accept me. I don't know why. I think that maybe I was just preparing myself for if, if you know, if they really didn't, that I was going to be okay with not playing again. Maybe that was the reason why. But, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was, you know, one day I could wake up and, you know, I'd feel really confident about it. The next day, you know, I would... I'd feel really down that, you know, maybe, you know, this might be the, the last time or the last practice I have with, you know, this this coach that because I won't play again. So after you, you came out and told people, you had to still go in the locker room. Can you tell us that story of what that was like for you, how the guys were when you walked in the locker room for the first time? Well, I can remember the, there's a four-on-four league that we have here in Edmonton. And I took a couple of days away from the gym away from group sessions on the ice just to kind of let myself decompress and let everyone take, you know, my story in, I guess. And I remember going to the gym, I think two days after I'd come out and I never told my my off-ice trainer. Um, he came up to me right away and, and, you know, we talked for a good 15 minutes. And I had some some players that uh, and some friends that I grew up you know, playing hockey with some really good players, some competitors. Um, you know, I remember Kirby Doc came up to me, uh, Matthew Robertson. Those two guys were at the gym. And then later on in that day, it was my team against a group of pros. So, like, I remember Jake DeBrus came up to me and, um, you know, David Quenville, Peter Quenville, just some local guys that, you know, I looked up to when I was younger. I wanted to be them, you know, playing in the Western Hockey League and, you know, seeing their careers and where they that, that took them. I wanted to be like them growing up and, um, that was that was really special for me, but in the locker room it was kind of different. Like especially the first day, like I had no one really talked to me. I guess they were, you know, everyone was kind of a bit a bit awkward and kind of didn't really know what to say to me. Um, everyone in the room had already congratulated me over social media, but it was a little it's a little bit different in person. Going into Calgary that year, it was different as well too. I mean, we had a really young team with a lot of new players being able to make the roster, so. I think a lot of the players going in didn't really know how to talk to me, I guess. Maybe thought that I was someone different now. You know, I wasn't one of the guys. And, I mean, I was only there for a short amount of time before I got traded to Edmonton. But, you know, it was was a little bit awkward with the guys in Calgary, but not with the few that, you know, I had played with for three or four years previously. And then in Edmonton, I mean, I can't say enough great things about that organization, you know, the people that they have, management and players and staff, like everyone was was so amazing. You know, my teammates were were unbelievable. Like there's I think the one thing that they that they realized really quick was that I was just trying to be, you know, one of the guys. Nothing about me changing, you know, my sexuality is it changes me as a as an individual and as a person. I think that I kind of showed them that really on early on that you know I was just one of the guys and you know you can joke around with me you can make fun of me and you know I'll I'll do it right back to you and I mean my experience in Edmonton was was unbelievable and I couldn't I couldn't thank the the Oil Kings enough for you know trading for me and you know taking me on that journey and you know making so many memories and so many great friends. Was there one specific moment you can tell me where you're like, okay, this is going to be okay? This is cool. Everything's going to be all right. I was in Calgary, and, you know, the team had been made. The team had been set, and we were just having a, 
a kind of a discussion in the locker room, you know, with all the staff was in there, um, just kind of like the equipment managers going over, you know, certain uh, certain rules and their expectations. Same with the trainers. Um, and my coach at the end of the meeting, Steve Hamilton, he kind of stopped it and he, you know, not explained my situation, but he addressed it to to the guys and, you know, he made sure that that there wasn't going to be any, you know, any homophobic slurs in this locker room, that there wasn't, I wasn't going to be belittled, made sure I didn't feel different from everyone else, made sure that I felt comfortable in the locker room. And he did a really good job just establishing that, you know, that I was, again, I was, I was a leader on that team at that point. You know, I was one of the older guys and, you know, someone for the, for the younger kids to look up to. So I think he just kind of set a tone for, for the rest of the season, I mean, I was only there for for three weeks, but that was that was one of the moments where I felt like that this this will be okay in the locker room for for many years to come. Corey, it's interesting because a lot of the issues Luke was facing and will continue to face have to do with the world of sports. When it comes to the culture of hockey, can you talk about the shift you've seen when it comes to acceptance, whether it be mental health or sexual identity, fighting, addiction? How, how has that changed? It, it's changed with education and the way the generations um, perceive mental health, sexual identity, all those things. I think you're seeing a mentality of we're standing in, in numbers and we're standing with people that have been, you know, pushed down or, or pushed aside because of, of these things. And I know guys that are gay that were hockey players that I played with and they felt that they couldn't come forward when they were playing and be, and be who they were. Um, and for Luke to be a pioneer like this is, is, a, is a great thing and I couldn't be more proud of this kid. One thing I do want to mention about this episode too is, Diane, you said this when we were interviewing Luke. Um, we, you know, we do a show on mental health, and by no means is this anything to do. This is more of a cultural type, um, and we're so proud of Luke for being able to to stand up and and be able to say, "Hey, you know what? Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna be that that person." And he's so young, and it's such an incredibly powerful thing for a young man to do. What an incredible person this he is. He really is. I think he really did talk about how he was treated by Nashville as well as by his teammates that I found really inspiring, that he was brave to come forward, but they also created an environment where he could be himself and he felt accepted and he flourished as a result. So that, that was really an inspiring part of, of this discussion. So, Dan, there's a lot of talk around the sports world about toxic masculinity. How would something like toxic masculinity affect someone like Luke in his feeling free to be able to come out and be who he is? I think when people talk about toxic masculinity, there's the kind of conversations that go on. Being a, a man means that you're betting a bunch of women and, you know, your teammates want you to be strong and powerful. And, and people have these mindsets sometimes about gay men that, well, they're sort of softer and they they have these mannerisms that might uh, make them less strong or less powerful. These are all, you know, beliefs that people come up with. Stigmas. That can be a real barrier, I think, to people being able to come out. First of all, it's all 
hogwash. It's not true. Whatever your sexuality is, if you're in the NHL, you're a damn good player. But for a young man who's trying to, first of all, work out his identity and then to be able to talk about it and not being at all able to share that experience and and not comfortable to talk about himself in that way, that certainly would be a, a challenge to overcome. I've heard a lot of people say it takes years to get to that place where they're ready to come out. Is there a science or psychology behind what keeping a secret like that does to your mental health? But what does releasing that do for a person as well? I don't know that it's necessarily about keeping a secret. It's about what the secret is, because we all have secrets and things we don't tell each other, and they're not always toxic. But when you can't be yourself, you're not able to be the person that you feel you are, that you know you are, that you're not safe or comfortable with the ability to be really open, especially as you get old enough to create intimate relationships and you feel like you have to live a lie, that's that's tough. And being gay is not a mental illness, but living with not being yourself, not understanding your feelings and hiding that does make you vulnerable to mental illness. And I think there's good data showing that young people who are forced to try to push away those feelings, whatever it is in the circumstance they're in where they're not allowed to be themselves, that is what makes them most vulnerable to developing challenges with their mental health, including depression, anxiety. We know that... um, Young people in that community are at greater risk for suicide, for instance. So it's really critical that the environment that they're in allows them to be themselves, whatever themselves is. Whether you're straight or gay, you want to be able to be the person that you are, and especially in the way that you're able to express your sexual identity, your identity in creating partners, and and your ability to make relationships. So if one of your patients were considering coming out, Diane, is there any advice you would give them before taking that step? Is there anything they can do to prepare for what kind of reaction might come with it? I think the first thing I would recommend is that they talk to people who have been on that journey and ask them how it was for them, what went well, what didn't go well. So that they they have they can kind of put it on for size, try it on and see see how that feels to them. Trying to pick the right person, and I think that Luke brought us through this incredible journey where he picked the safest person in his life that he knew or he thought would be okay, which was his sister, and then slowly moved person to person as he gained I think, confidence and trust that he would be okay. It was still. I know when I was talking to him, really anxiety-provoking, just listening to him talk about how hard it was. And my heart was breaking because I knew this this painful process that he went through. But you could tell when he finally got it out and was able to talk to about himself in a really authentic way, it was like a, a weight lifted off him. And he talked about how much freer he felt. You can't prevent the fact that there are going to be people who have negative reactions. But you can prepare for the fact that they may come and actually create a script. What will I say if? 
And one of the things, and I do this with all kinds of difficult, critical conversations that people have, is actually role-playing. What if you hear this? What if you hear that? What will you say? And, and the more you practice those words, the more natural they become. And they become sort of a shield for those difficult conversations that may hurt. You can lessen the hurt if you're prepared. When you're in this environment, as Corey talks about this hyper-masculine hockey environment, and people care about you, and they want to make you feel comfortable, and I'm sure there have been calls, phone calls, texts, conversations where you go, oh, I know what you're trying to do here, but man, that's uncomfortable, or, you know, (laughs) where people are trying their best. Do you have any memories of that time where people, you knew they were trying hard, but man, they just didn't know what to do or say? It was, it was early on in Edmonton. It was just about kind of locker room talk. We were in line just doing, you know, high knees, butt kicks, shuffles, stuff like that. And one of the guys on my team was talking about kind of a player that he grew up with in the same area, same neighborhood, that their families didn't like each other. And, you know, he, he said, oh, that guy's such a faggot. And he, no, again, no one said anything um, and he kind of like brushed it off, like as if, as if he thought I didn't hear it. I mean, I was only like three guys behind him, and he said it pretty loud. And so he, he thought I didn't hear it, and we all just kind of went about our business. And then I remember at the end of the warm up, one of the guys on my team he went up to to this player, and I don't know the conversation that they had. I assume it was, you know, you can't say that stuff around here, you know. You know, with Luke here, like this, that's unacceptable, and you need to go apologize to him right now. So I was, I was on the bike after, and I remember he came right from that conversation right over to me, and apologized to to me, and you know, just wanted to. It, it was, I mean, again, it was, it was one of those words that people use all the time that feel like they have no meaning, um, and they just say it in their vocabulary just because they do. So I mean, I get where he was coming from. I mean, I had used the word too before. But he uh, he just apologized, and then we got in the room, and he he kind of uh, apologized to everyone as well, and that kind of set a standard for the rest of the year. And um, I mean, I didn't hear one homophobic slur the entire the entire you know rest of the season, which was for us probably another nine months at that point. Was there an opportunity ever in that kind of situation where you actually could explain or educate or talk about? your own experience in a way that helped them going forward and and their attitudes? Because I think, you know, you still hear these ridiculous things. Well, having a gay guy in the locker room means, you know, that he's he's getting off on looking at me kind of thing, which Mm -hmm. those kind of things that, that stick, they're, they're those beliefs that are there. Did you have an opportunity to talk about any of that stuff? I think I set a standard kind of right when I got to Edmonton that I told them that they are all, I mean, I love them all to death. And I, I tell them this after after the season, midway through the season, whenever, you know, I love you guys all to death, but you are some of the most disgusting humans <laughs> I have ever met in my entire life. So do not think highly of yourselves that I like you or like you in that way, um, because I most certainly do not. And one of the things I think I can relate to with another player on my team he was very open this year with our team about his mental health struggles. And I think that's also something that 
made our team so great, we were able to have those conversations and not, they weren't awkward at all. You know, we knew everyone was going through their certain things and we wanted to be there for each other, you know, through the ups, through the downs, um, if they needed advice or if they just wanted someone there just to, you know, be with them and sit with them and not say anything. Me and this player had conversations about, you know, it was kind of the same thing, you know, if someone just said, gay or, you know, faggot to me or just said it in context or in a sentence, he could relate to it as, you know, spaz or crazy hurt, I guess, by people using it um, just out of context. You know, when people actually felt like they were going through something that, you know, those words actually had a deeper meaning to them than, you know, the other individuals on my team knew. And again, we had open dialogue about that in our dressing room. And I think that was one of the reasons why our team was so special and made our team so great. If you were like a Christmas party or a team party or anything, if you had a partner, how comfortable would you feel bringing them? How do you feel about that? I'm glad you brought that up because that's actually something that I, I wanted to talk about that probably affected me, you know, in my, in my mental health as well. Um, I was in a relationship for two years um, and I had met, you know, my, my, he's, he's now my ex-boyfriend. I had met him right when I got home from Calgary, probably around, yeah, March of 2020. So I had, it was my like first real relationship. Like I dated girls and stuff, but I mean, grade seven kiss by the lockers, like doesn't really count. But I was in a two-year relationship, started in March I mean, I didn't tell my sister I was dating someone, I don't think, until probably June, July. So I kind of had to navigate my first real relationship on my own as well. Like, I wasn't comfortable talking about it with anyone else. You know, the struggles I had, I didn't know, you know, when to get mad or when to, I don't know, when to be comforting for him or... You know, if he was upset with me, like, if do I give him space or do I talk to him or just stuff like that? Like, I kind of had to do that on my own as well. But to your point, like, once I got to to Edmonton, my teammates, you know, he he would come to games and stuff. But my teammates really wanted to to meet him. They wanted him to come to parties. They, you know, if we were go out for dinner, they wanted him to come to that. I told him that they wanted to see him. He wasn't, I don't think, too comfortable yet with kind of being in that environment, which is which was fair. Um, I totally understood it, but they were they were really invested, you know, in my relationship life. I guess I would say they wanted to know what he did for work, you know, where he went to school, how old he is, what he likes doing, like if he likes hockey, does he come to the games, little things like that that I didn't realize would make such an impact on me, you know that. It's it was just another heartwarming thing that you know the guys in Edmonton did. Like they wanted to know kind of every single part about his life that I was comfortable telling them. Um, but they wanted to know him. They wanted to get to know him because they knew he was important to me. And you know that's that's why they did it. And but yeah, I would I would definitely feel comfortable bringing them to you know a Christmas party or a team party, team dinner. Luke, clearly you had a lot going on in your head. You were feeling pretty down. You even had some thoughts of maybe life is not worth continuing. You were worried about how everyone was going to react. There was an awful lot going on before you came out. Was there a turning point where you felt like you were able to leave that behind, where you you felt like you were able to... Uh, 
leave the depression or those that sort of oppressive pressure that you were going through, was there any point that it really changed and you were able to leave that behind? I think the first one would, I mean, just be coming out to my sister, taking that leap of faith. I'm a big quote person and I've always loved this quote. It was, it's when it's scary to jump in, that's exactly when you jump in. And that was something that I guess was just kind of going through my mind, you know, before telling my sister, yeah, having that courage, having, you know, being brave and having that leap of faith just to go in and talk to her. That was the, that was kind of the first step, I think, um, on a personal level. And then secondly, on a personal level, on a hockey level, my phone call with, with Nashville, I remember, you know, they wanted to have a call about it. We, me and my agent kind of, you know, we, we made a plan. We wanted to tell the people and the organizations beforehand that we thought should know or, you know, have a statement ready, like the WHL, the NHL, NHLPA, Hockey Canada, CHL, Nashville, Calgary. And, you know, Nashville wanted to have a call with me. So I was like, okay, great. And it was, you know, all of their big wigs, like, you know, Mr. Poyle, Brian Poyle, Mr. Poyle's son, Scott Nickel, all the uh, player development coaches. I think Yossi was on that call as well. Jeff Kelty, you know, kind of the main guy, and, and Glenn Sanders, the two main people that drafted me and saw something in me and, and for, ho- for hockey potential. And they each kind of just said their own little piece to me of how proud they were of me and how the organization has my back a thousand percent. They weren't going to tolerate any homophobia or, you know, they weren't going to, they were going to make sure I wasn't treated any differently than, you know, any other prospect and made sure I felt comfortable in the organization. And I remember getting off the phone call. I was coming home from a practice and I started crying. No, not crying. I started bawling. Because in that moment, I'm like, this team that drafted me that did not know the secret about me beforehand, they drafted me on for ho- like based just on my hockey talent and who I am as a person. But to see them actually really know me now as a person and still want me to play for their organization and have my back a thousand percent and are comfortable with me being in the organization made me so confident that that was the right decision to do. So, like, in that moment, I said, like, I felt like I could do anything in the world. Like, I felt like if I, I don't know, I, I slammed my car into, I was going a million miles an hour. Like, I felt like I could live through that. Like, I felt superhuman at that point. So that that was probably the second moment. Uh, and, and the reason why I felt confident in doing it with hockey was was because of that call I had with Nashville. So are you still on that high, do you think, Luke, where you just feel like on top of the world and that you can do anything and that you can do this in the National Hockey League or you can make and play in the National Hockey League? Or is that kind of just, now it's just like, now I just want to be Luke. I want to be Luke, the hockey player. I think it's it's gone down a little bit, but I think it's also just kind of my normal now. Like, I had people accepting me friends, family, coaches, teammates, everything. that That's just kind of my new normal. Like, I, I, I feel like I can do a lot more and a lot. I'm a lot more confident about everything than I was before. It has gone down a little. Like, sometimes I just kind of want to be Luke the hockey player. And, I mean, it, I get recognized for it because, you know, I was, you know, the first player under contract to do it. But sometimes I just wish I was, you know, just Luke and, People would, you know, just ask me more questions about my hockey game and stuff like that than my personal life. But, I mean, I'm always going to ride that high. I think that high is going to be with me for for my entire life and until the day I, I end up, you know, in the grave. So fans are going to yell shit at you. You know that. I mean, fans are fans, mm-hmm. right? How will you deal with that? And what do you think the best way is to deal with that for anybody? 
I actually did. There was an instance this year. We were playing in Lethbridge. I didn't hear what the fan had said, but I got a message from the uh, Lethbridge photographer after, and said, you know, she was apologizing for one of the one of the fans, you know, using homophobic slurs, whatever. She thought I heard it, but I didn't. And I mean, that situation went to the WHL and kind of sort of got it dealt with. But I guess I'm a little petty in a way. You know, if 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 I heard it and I could, you know, I was able to see the fan like I I'm one of those guys that would be like like you know you're paying to watch me play hockey like stuff like that um Love it. and trying to trying to give it back to them I'm not a really big chirper on the ice in general but you know if someone were to kind of attack me in a personal way on or off the ice like I don't mind being like that and you know you know giving it a little back I do want to get to one thing that Elton John called you. Are you kidding me? Can you tell us what that was like? Elton John did call me. It was the <laughs> morning after. Uh, I didn't sleep the the day I came out. Like I didn't sleep at night. You know, the night before, I tried to have a nap the day of, and I couldn't. So when I when I finally got to sleep that night, I probably slept for twelve, thirteen hours. And I remember waking up. I had no. I didn't set an alarm. I remember waking up, and I had four missed phone calls from my agent and I had four missed phone calls from my media manager and if I remember correctly it was just Elton John wants to phone you that was all the text said it had no no context to it whatsoever like what time you know what kind of number so I mean I knew who Elton John was and I was like that's I mean that's he's a pretty big deal I don't think this is actually going to happen so I just kept my phone on me for for the morning and I was I got up and I was just making breakfast and all of a sudden I get a phone call. And it was from this 13-digit number. It said it was from Paris, France or something like that. And I'm like, well, you know, might as well. You know, this could be Elton John or this could be someone telling me that I'm being arrested for fraud and, you know, my social security number is, is being taken or something <laughs> like that, like all those scammers are. So I, I answered the phone and I was like, hello. He's like, hi, is this Luke Prokop? And I was like, yes. He's like, this is Sir Elton John. And I didn't, I don't think I spoke for probably 20 seconds. Like I, I, I was kind of in shock. And, you know, he was, he was amazing. He just kind of wanted to congratulate me on the day. And, you know, he wanted to know how I was feeling afterwards. And we exchanged information. So, you know, if, if I ever need anything, I can contact him. And the reason why he reached out and he knew was because his partner, I guess, is from Canada and a huge hockey fan. So that's kind of how he heard about my story. And, you know, he just wanted to reach out and congratulate me and, you know, kind of welcome me to the community. So that was something I'll never forget. And I'll never forget telling my mom um, she was sitting in the in the chair in the in the living room. And I told her and she started to cry. So uh, that was that was pretty funny, too. You have a, a lot to look forward to. And I'm wondering... What are you most excited about? First, I'm going to ask you on the NHL side, and then on the side of a the impact that your story can have on so many people. So what are you most excited about from an NHL perspective? I think just as a little kid, like, I'm very close to, you know, making my dreams come true of being an NHL player. And, you know, that four-year-old that wanted to be... Shea Weber or Nicholas Lidstrom, you know, on the outdoor rink, you know, fantasizing that they were them making all these cool plays on the outdoor rink or with Shinny playing with friends like that, that that might be a reality one day. I have a photo from when I was in grade six 
And it was just what everyone wanted to be when they grew up. And mine, it was just on a little chalkboard, and mine was NHL player. And the day I came out, one of my old classmates' moms sent me that photo. So it was just really cool to see that. Again, just knowing how, how close I am and, you know, just wanting to push that much harder, work that much harder to get to that point of living my dreams of my childhood dreams of, you know, playing in the NHL and, you know, hopefully having a long and, and healthy career. You may not see yourself as, as a change maker on the social front, but uh, is that something you could imagine that you would speak about more? You're doing this podcast now, but do you see yourself as a leader in the LGBTQ community? I mean, that was one of the main reasons why I came out as well, too. You know, I wanted to do it for myself on a on a personal level and a hockey level, but I also wanted it for for other people. If my story could impact one person in the world, then I think I I, I went through all that trauma and you know and that struggle for for a reason. And you know, I wanted to to help people see you know that you can you know either play sports or you know even just come out in general. You know, you can do what you want. And, you know, seeing the stories and the messages of the impact that I've had on people so far in, you know, it's only been, you know, just over a year since I came out. But the impact I've had on people all over the world is really inspiring. And, you know, on the days when I don't feel like getting up to go work out or, you know, getting up and, or, you know, doing that one last rep in the gym or, you know, taking skating hard in, in practice all the time, you know, that's kind of what pushes me. I want to be able to be a role model for, for the kids out there that, you know, that I didn't have when I was younger, you know, playing in the NHL. I wanted to to see someone in, in the NHL like me, and I want to be that person for little kids all around the world. Well, Luke, we we really want to thank you, not just for being here, but for being an incredible young man and so brave you will have an impact on more lives than you can ever imagine. And so thank you so much for taking the time to share your story with us in such an open and heartfelt way. Thank you. You've got a group of fans here cheering for you. I still don't think you could have scored on me, but that's, I am 5'10". That's I horseshit. I could have scored on you easily. <laughs> I'm 5'10". Can you imagine how much net you see on goalies like me now? You can't even I, I like find it actually seven. harder to score on shorter goalies, so maybe, it's, uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe yes. you would stop everything. One for the good guys. PlayersTribute.com